Hello and welcome to Insights, the Cubs UCC podcast with me, Anthony MacDonnell, Professor of Human Resource Management. Each episode, I find out some of the new and groundbreaking research and ideas from Cubs lecturers that are making an impact on society in Ireland and abroad. From business to Brexit, management to marketing, we're bringing you fresh perspectives and different ways of thinking here on the Insights podcast. And on this episode, I find out the remarkable journey of Michael Toomey, a cystic fibrosis patient himself and who set out to improve the lives of those impacted by the genetic disorder through his PhD research. I have memories of, of getting physiotherapy. Um, now, physiotherapy uh, basically involved postural drainage and percussion. Um, basically, a physiotherapist, what looks like he's beating the lard of you, right in your lungs to try and loosen phlegm, you know. And I remember there was this physiotherapist, I think he was German, he used to come and uh, he was trying to teach my mother as well, you know, on how to give us physio. And uh, I used to dread when he was coming because I, I used to perceive this first coming and give me a few lashes. Like, now what, when you're using percussion, it's, you're, you're kind of creating a, your hand like that. So you're not hitting with the hand because there's a trapped bit of air between. So, But it's, it's generally used to... I, I was allergic to that and that was one of the motivators for me to get involved in exercise because I said I'd be damned if I'm going to have this flare or anyone else. Now, I was taught you, they have it has evolved since we self-taught, but I just thought that was boring for me, you know. Um, uh, but I was lucky that I can exercise well. Like I do Taekwondo in UCC, Taekwondo Club, I'm one of the instructors down there. Um, I run in marathons. I go to the gym a few times a week and I... For me, I have to do that just as, like I have to eat. If I don't do that, you know, and uh, mucus builds up, they're, they're in, like, provide the environment for an infection to, to grow in. And um, so for me, that's a non-runner. So I basically exercise rigorously, you know, and that as a PhD is challenging because you have so much time consumed in your PhD, but nevertheless, I have to do it. I have to fit in that with a, a child and a wife and so on. Like, my time has been just eaten, literally. But um, if I don't do it, I get an infection, and that can be miserable because when you get an infection, you're exhausted, tired, you're on a load of medications, which are exhausting as well. Um, if it goes pear-shaped, you get intravenous treatment, which is basically um, injecting yourself. You have a long line put in, basically, you have to inject medication into yourself twice daily, and you get tissueing veins and stuff like that, and it's quite unpleasant. Um, so when you know that that's the outcome of a bad infection, there's a motivation there. I don't, you know, not just in terms of interfering with, you know, what you're doing on a daily basis, um, but also obviously the other, the other areas as well. So for me, it's a great motivator for me to exercise and try and as another, you know, good friend of mine says, kick, kick CF's ass. You know, it needs a regular ass kicking, you know. So um, I suppose one of the other challenges with CF is peep, it's it's kind of invisible to a large degree unless you're coughing around the place like a lunatic, um, which is a, referred to as a spasm of coughing. And I have got those as well, and they're not particularly nice. And it can be a bit embarrassing. But when people perceive you as healthy, they go, kind of, well, what's wrong with you? Do you know what's all the CF about, you know? But... If they saw you when you were actually sick with it, you know, they said, Jesus Christ, this is hairy, you know what I mean? Um, so, fortuitously, I've 
you know, for a lot of patients that I know that are in and out of hospital every few months, could be every few weeks, you know, getting intravenous. Um, and they're lucky if they can come home. Some of them are just too sick. You know what I mean? You know, so so there is the, the very black side. Uh, and that's just in your lungs. It affects your fertility. It can affect your gastrointestinal area as well. So, like, part of the medications I have to take um, is pancreatic supplements to help me digest my food. And if I don't, that leads to abdominal cramps. I've often said to my wife that the abdominal cramps that I get, I'm sure must be on par with giving birth because I said, <laughs> you know, if they're or else getting stabbed, do you know what I mean? Um, because the pain can be ferocious, you know. So there's another motivator not to forget, you know, that's one tablet I don't forget to take. So we do this massive payback, you know. But um, And are we seeing... And I suppose since obviously as, as living it from a young child right through to the present day, are we seeing um, good advances in oh, we medical, yeah. like, like a lot yeah. of areas now and it's just that it's progressively moving in a good direction where it's helping improve outcomes? The medications have improved substantially, thank God. I mean, one of the new ones that came up was Orcambi, which I was involved in campaigning for. Um, I think they put me in the radio sometimes is because I would get a bit emotional about it in more ways than one. Um so, but I was active with Jill McNulty, who's one of the, you know, campaigners for our campaign and who's a good friend of mine. Um, you know, we did it. She she was the main campaigner, but I looked after the South with a couple of others. And we eventually got the bloody drug anyway after a few marches on the dial air and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So, uh, but that drug has been wonderful. Um like what it's known to do statistically from the pharmaceutical company Vertex that produced it is to reduce reduce exacerbations or infections. But for me, it resulted in an increase in lung function. Um, so that was that was wonderful, you know. Um, for some people, though, unfortunately, the drug didn't work out. It's like any drug. It'll work for some people. It won't work for other. This is where we have the arrival of precision-based medicine, where we make drugs specific to the user's needs, you know, because it's like everything. It's a one size fits all. It doesn't work. And the sooner technology companies get that into their head, you know, the better, you know, because they come out with stupid apps that they think is going to work for everybody, and it doesn't. You need to understand who you're making this product for. Understand them. Live their life, you know. Um, it's only by that can you really you know, produce the technology required. And in terms of your, your PhD and the, the link to it, was, was it, what came first? Was it the, an interest in research or was it the, was it the cystic fibrosis? Or how, how did this idea for a PhD come about? The idea for PhD came about, um, I had my own company for 13 years. And during that time, I was approached by Fergal Carton um, to do a cloud strategy innovation with the IMI. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, <laughs> so, um, and it was, but that was really the transformational moment. I remember sitting, I think it was in November and we were trying to come up with an idea for a blueprint. And I was kind of, um, at the same time, my dad was going through cardiology problems and with it. And I remember my seeing my mum filling out his medication, um, on pieces of paper because he'd been referred to the matter from the bonds. And I was saying, they're asking the same questions again. I said, hey, this is the same as myself. So it seemed to spawn from there that 
we have this problem um, of recalling information accurately within the medical appointment, within medical encounters with clinicians, and it causes problems, you know. And a lot of the time, the data that we impart to clinicians is inaccurate or highly subjective. Um, and, you know, it's bound to affect us, right? And it does. And the more research that I did talking to peers with CF or carers of CF children, the more I realised that this is a problem that we all have. Um, and so I went from the Cloud Strategy and Innovation Diploma on to do uh, the Master's in Data Business. And uh, I got a bug. I just seemed to love learning. You know, I was formerly a biochemist. I, I seemed to... I don't know, some people describe me as a bit of a polymath. I just love information of all different types. But this was personal as well. I suppose I um, had a son, Jack, as well, after getting married. And I said to myself, you know, I'm 47 now. I was younger, obviously, I'm 47 today. Um, but I kind of realised that I need to be around for him as long as I can. And management is one of the key fundamentals to being, you know, to a chronic condition and the success of it. And I said, fundamental to that, if 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 I was going to be successful with my health and, and prolonging my life was going to be uh, managing it better. And I suppose that's one of the areas that I felt I wasn't doing a good job on and I needed to do something better, you know. I also, fortuitously, um, I suppose people look at me and go, Jesus, he's 47, he should be dead, you know. And statistically, I should be, because only 5% of people live above their 20s with CF. You know, so um, so I'm a bit of a freak <laughs> that way, you know, and I felt, you know, I need to give something back as well. Um, even when I had my own business, you know, I firmly believe in corporate social responsibility and we got active in, in fundraising for CF charities. So um, that was, I suppose, how it came about. Mm. And you mentioned you know. statistically in terms of, you know, the, the, the outcomes. How, what, in the context of what, how many sufferers of CFR are there in, in Ireland about? Or how big <coughs> well, the, day, is the this? registry would say about 1,300. There may okay. be more because not everyone is registered. Worldwide, there's about 70,000 CF sufferers. So we would have the highest populace, um, you know, per head of capita, I suppose, mm. you know what I mean? In terms of, you know, where they call it the Celtic curse. You know, we have a very mm. high, you know, number in terms of the size of our population. Okay. So. And in terms of that statistic piece then, um, like is, you know, you're saying you're, you've, you've described yourself as a freak in terms of at 47, you're still yeah. going strong. Um, is that, is that about, pro is that some of that is about proactive management um, as much as, or, or is that just a mixture of medication, look and everything else? I think it's a mixture of things. It's mm. a mixture of things. One of the, there's no doubt about it. There's a genomic component, which is your genetic makeup. Um, you know, um, and, I, and I believe there's a lot to be yet discovered in relation to genes and subgenes, you know, um, and how they influence each other and cause the protein within the, the membrane. You know, I mean, I don't know if you know, but basically the defect is this CFTR protein and how it folds and it controls the flow of chloride across the membrane, you know, and that's fundamentally, you know, it, it's the gene is, is, is ubiquitous. It's expressed in every cell in the body basically you know and, and how it comes about basically is both parents have to give the, the defective chromosome you know so if only one parent gives it you're a carrier but you don't have it mm. one in 19 people are in Ireland carry the gene you know so basically um, 
there's no doubt about it. Management is is fundamental to it. The genetic makeup obviously is a component, but I'm rigorous um, about my medication, how I take it. Probably wasn't rigorous enough in how I was recording my information so I could recall information when I needed to. Um, you know, because we all forget things, you know. And so then maybe the t- tell me about the research and in more detail in terms of how, <coughs> how it's unfolding and the potential and the impact that it's having or you yeah. see it having. Yeah. So I suppose I'll get to the vision last, but where it's kind of, I suppose the journey started with me being like everyone else. And it's funny, I'm in Cubs and, and I'm in BIS. And, and I think that this uh, world has become obsessed with technology. And uh, I'd be no different to the rest of the people out there. Um, I, you know, love technology. I love the way it works. Love the way I love the way it impacts and what we can do with it. But I was running to an application or an app, and I said, "This is the way. This is the answer." And I was inside in. Um, it was a Thursday afternoon, and we were presenting our our research, and um, my uh, lecturer started to challenge me. He wasn't convinced that people would use the app, and we were having this conversation which got quite heated you know because I'm that one of the components I think that has me alive as well as I'm a bit cantankerous you know a bit you know if you set me a challenge I'll go after it you know um, that's a good thing for doing a PhD it's a good thing (laughs) and it's actually one of the reasons I'm probably alive as well because my parents probably saw it in me you know they say never disclose a weakness but my parents saw this in me that they could set little challenges run up that hill run around that block we'll see how fast you can do it and of course, me being like uh, the guinea pig, I went off and did it, you know. So um, he was challenging me and uh, re- reflecting back on the day, I, I probably didn't take it as well as I should have taken it. I, I got a bit got a bit heated, but he wasn't letting go either. And he was right not to let go. And um, I remember I referred to that day as Tragic Thursday. You know, I'm actually writing my fourth paper at the moment and it's a reflection. And um, that Tragic Thursday is mentioned and um, it was a low point and also a changing point in my research. And we went on from an app to kind of say we need to understand behaviours, we need to understand people, um, how they're going to use it, how they're not. We need to gain more insights. So we started looking at prototyping, which was developed by a fellow called Saviola in, from Google. And basically, it's paper-based prototyping, you know. It's very, very useful because you can understand what people like, what they don't like. But what it does is it stops you falling in love with your solution. You just rip it up, start again, you know. So it's it's a throwaway type thing. And it's very, very simple. And it's very cost-effective for a PhD, you know, student, uh, you know, or anyone else that's that's looking to innovate. Um, but you get some fabulous insights, you know, in terms of will people use it? How will they use it? What difficulties do they have using it? And lo and behold, as we went further down the journey, we started to discover that actually this was working. And one of the reasons it was working um, was within the medical appointment, it's a highly stressed environment. The clinicians have only so much time to spend with any one patient. And... Um, the majority of people are very used to using pen and paper um, in a quick way, scratching notes rather than, you know, interfacing with a, a phone or an iPad, you know, where they're looking for drop downs and it gets all fussy. And, 
you know. And we actually did a trial uh, with just an, an Excel spreadsheet kind of, you know what I mean, to do a comparison. And the clinician started getting very frustrated because he was saying, listen, lads, I don't have all day. You know what I mean? This isn't working. Whereas with the pen and paper, it was almost seamless. The patient or the care was just scratching down notes. And um, that worked well. We just, you know, we went through a number of iterations. The methodology we used was action designs research, which was an agile methodology. So we did some changes, put it back out there, evaluated it, took in that feedback, made some more changes, and it went on and on. So we got to about iteration four. Um, but during that journey, we, you know, the, the problem formulation, which is actually one of the pieces I write about in my ref- reflection, um, the problem or my understanding of the problem evolved from wanting an app to it being we needed, um, you know, to satisfy information needs. Right? That was the next piece that we thought was information needs. Then we realized that actually it was memory recall was the problem or a person's inability to recall information. Because if we had a perfect memory, we wouldn't have to remember the stuff. It would just be in our minds. And then I suppose for the real interesting, and, and that was interesting in, in, in and of itself, but what really became interesting was I wasn't satisfied with that. Um, I felt that we needed to do some more exploring to explain the success of the checklist. Because at this stage we were getting, you know, 80 or 9%, 80 or 90% of patients' care is using it. It was having a real impact in terms of stress and empowerment, reducing stress and giving this sense of empowerment. And also it was improving memory recall, which was improving um, the information um, given to the clinician. You know, and the clinicians were were agreeing with this, you know, and they found it fantastic as well. You know, because I went and I interviewed a number of clinicians up in the Cork University Hospital in relation to it. You know, and the feedback was very good for everyone. But I was just saying, you know, you know, let's, you know, settle ourselves and, and look to see if there's anything we're missing. And um, lo and behold, when I, I did this um, nine-month lit review on memory in the medical appointment, now nine months is a long time, and I was a, I used um, Watson and Webster's concentric matrix, and uh, I was accused by uh, one of my... Um, friend stroke uh, lectures uh, as creating the biggest concentric matrix that was ever known in mankind. You know, I, um, I, I have no doubt I have reams of, of, of information, you know, that I can use for future research. But not to digress and, and, and to get back to the point that, that uh, I'm trying to make is that I discovered that if you unpackage memory recall into its components, you know, this is what I'm saying is long-term declarative memory into its subcomponents, that it's actually can be broken down into all different types of memory. And some of the most important ones for the, for the medical appointment would be um, prospective memory or remembering to remember. So remembering to report symptoms, remembering to highlight concerns that a care or a patient may have. Um, then you've got episoic memory, which is remembering an event. In other words, as you asked me earlier, what did you have for breakfast? That's an event, you know. Um, and, w- and the challenges in remembering event is that if you have an awful lot of events, such as having breakfast, they merge into each other. And being able to pinpoint particular information in relation to event becomes quite difficult, you know, over time, especially months, years later, you know. Um, 
And then if you put all the events together, you have what they call autobiographical memory, which, as the name would suggest, is your is a huge, you know, time frame of events, you know. So um, by understanding that and looking at the narratives within the medical appointment, um, my own narratives over time, um, we understood that in actual fact the, the narratives were mapping directly across to the checklist, to the various aspects of the checklist, and that's why it was working so well. But out of that event, um, that lit review, I also discovered that one of the one of the downsides, the checklist, is that it wasn't actually adapt or, you know, um, ticking the box for autobiographical memory easily. You know, a patient or care would be going around with a load of sheets, which is the the checklist itself. Um, no, they could file them, etc. But there was still bother, and I, I make this point in in the paper I'm doing at the moment that you know patients have enough going on; they spend an awful amount of time doing the treatments, exercising, etc. And from that perspective, they don't need to be looking for workarounds, you know. Workarounds to this, workarounds to that, it's just frustrating. So I said I wasn't going to be satisfied with that. I wanted to go further. So I went from just the checklist as a single entity piece of paper to creating a booklet with 28 checklists in it. Um, it was robust and now they had basically a repository of medical discourse within this piece of this uh, booklet, okay? And that would last for about three or four years on general, generally, depending on the frequency of appointments. So now we had ticked the boxes for the main, all the major type of memories we used within the medical appointment. And that since was distributed by the, um, the CFI, the Cystic Fibrosis Association of Ireland, to all CF patients and carers within Ireland. And I don't know how it happened, but someone got wind of it. And then I was approached by the Czech Republic, um, or the Czech uh, Cystic Fibrosis Association. So I've sent the booklet over to them and they're reviewing it. And now recently, within the last number of weeks, I've also been approached by <clears throat> the Austrian Cystic Fibrosis Association, you know, because they're interested in it as well. And it's simple, and sometimes it's simplicity. I think it challenges people to think of it as technology. It challenges people to, th to think of the significance. And I suppose from a, you know, a researcher writing academic papers, that's a challenge. But for me, I suppose... Thankfully, the people that I did this for, the most important are the carers and patients, and it's having an impact in their lives. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, I think, you know. It's, clearly it's having phenomenal impact, and it's it's great to to see other countries looking at this as well. And it, it I couldn't help but notice, and when you talk through this, in terms of the potential benefit and the importance of you know of the active engagement as a research. So, you know, a lot of the time we talk about research, we talk about objectivity, um, and that's obviously important. Um, but equally. I, I'm guessing listening to you in terms of that you weren't you, you talk about you weren't happy with this level of it you weren't happy with this and, and wanting to push forward is that potentially a researcher maybe not truly understanding or suffering from the condition may have stopped there um, because ultimately they didn't fully understand the context so you talk about the action research saying do you think that is how how important and useful a methodology do you actually feel that being for other researchers that might be thinking about PhD and having this impact 
Well, I think action design research, one of its, one of its, uh, the, the, the first stage is problem formulation. And they list a number of principles and a number of activities that need to be done. But I think where it's very, very weak is in the finding out who exactly has the problem. What is, you know, how does it affect them? How does it make them feel? You know, um, if you can't gain that insight from a human dimension, you know, then how are you meant to design something for a human? You know, you know? so for me, um, I bought in design thinking. And we did personas, we did journey maps and all this. And people said to me, but why did you do that? Should you have CF, you know? You know, because I have the tag CF in my head doesn't mean that my life or my journey is the same or I experience the condition the same as anyone else, you know? It was a revelation for me. And actually, it's I suppose it's just me revealing a bias um, that exists. Um, it was a revelation for me to see how, how CF affects other people, carers, other CF patients from different demographics, etc. It was eye-opening for me as well. And I was kind of there saying, wow, I thought I understood this disease, but I didn't understand it at all. You mentioned your own company, so I think you, you, know, you graduated as a biochemist, worked in the medical sector, did computer science as well, mm. um, and then decided to sell your company to pursue a PhD. Um, yeah. What possessed you? Um, I don't know. <laughs> if, if, looking back, I suppose there's enough material there for a whole uh, psychiatric conference. But, um, <laughs> no, it, it sounded like there was just something in me that this sounded the right thing to do. And uh, I'm the type of per It was the reason, I suppose, I set up my own company. At that time, setting up my own company, I'd worked three years consultancy with an IT consulting company in Dublin. And... Um, the dot-com bubble had kind of burst within the company I was working at there had been a number of redundancies there had been three and I said to myself you know I'm not going waiting around here this is a bit of a sinking ship um, plus I obviously had the idea as well from you know conversations I've had with SMEs in relation to you know IT and their perception of IT and who was looking after and what how, how it was enabling their business and stuff like that. So I met some like-minded um, uh, colleagues, should we say. One of them was a good friend of mine, another guy was I knew from the school, the secondary school I was in. And this sounds terrible, no, I shouldn't be saying this, but it was over a bottle of vodka at a 30th birthday party that we kind of sealed the deal and decided we were going to go for it. And that's the type of person I am. If I feel passionate about something, I go for it. I suppose it comes with the territory of having a, a critical condition um, that can kill you. You kind of believe life is for living and taking the few risks. Do you know what I mean? You know, what's it going to do, kill you? Do you know what I mean? No. Do you know what I mean? I already know what that's like, having something that can kill me. So like, I'm just going to go for it. Do you know what I mean? And if it doesn't work, so what? Do you know what I mean? Uh, you know, I'll have learned something. And if we think now, because obviously we're, you know, over the coming weeks and months, we will have a significant return or students starting for the first time in Cubs. Um, advice or tips for, you know, for, you know, students coming in, studying for the first time, budding entrepreneurs, etc. What What would you be your advice based on maybe your business experience, your PhD, your own, you know, managing your health and, and, and living with that condition? 
There's a lot of, you've asked a lot of yeah. components there. Um, living with a condition, I don't believe that you should leave the condition to define you. It's part of you, definitely, but it doesn't define you. You know, what defines you is up to yourself. Um, and you must go after what you believe in and what makes what you're passionate about. You know, don't be afraid um, to go after things. You know what I mean? Um, life is for living. And if you love life, then go for it. You know, um, in relation to a job and a career, I would say um, the old adage, work hard. But you're only going to work hard at something if you love it. So be passionate about it. You know, find some aspect to it that you can resonate with and go after it, you know. Um, I suppose from the PhD as well, I've learned, you know, be aware of your own first assumptions. Challenge yourself to think differently and don't be afraid to evolve because as a researcher and as a student, you will evolve. Your mindset will evolve. We evolve as humans all the time, you know. Don't be afraid of that. Enjoy it, um, you know, but question your assumptions. And I guess that really comes in, obviously, UCC and the business school have this mm. key line of independent thinking. So you, I suppose mm. you're really saying we should be yeah. doing to absolutely do that. I, uh, that. I've amazed myself where, where in a lot of ways, I don't think I've changed, but in many ways I have. Um, big problem, I suppose, is sometimes we don't realise how we've changed, right. you know. Um, but understanding something is is key you know if you can't understand something you can't take the necessary action you know to get the value out of something Mm. and like i think you may for me a profound point which i've heard um Mm. others make this point as well previously in terms of not letting a condition Mm. define you it's part of you Mm. and is that something that came naturally to you in terms of that or is that something you have to work on you know people there's so many people out there that are yeah. getting news probably today yeah. about these conditions and you know obviously we all deal with that differently and we all have to yeah. process it differently is, is there some you know thing there that well, you can talk I suppose to? there's no doubt about it having a condition you know that can kill you is is not pleasant um, and you have to manage it not just the physiological but the psychological and there's no doubt about it the psychological aspect does take management. There's no doubt about it. I have my black days. I refer, you know, if I get a bad infection or something like that, I, obviously it's the, the psychological component comes in. You know, um, I refer to it as the dark shadows. They come into the room. But, you know, I've, I suppose I know a number of people that have gone through depression and stuff like that, and they refer to it as the black dog, you know. If you keep feeding the black dog, it's going to get bigger. So my, you know, take on it is don't feed the dog, you know, kick the black shadows out. Um, you have an alternative, leave them in and deal with, then you no longer have just a chronic condition, you have a psychological condition as well, you know. Um, so you have two things to, ma- to manage. Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, my attitude when I came to the fork in the road is get busy living or get busy dying. You know, um, I choose to, to live and uh, to embrace it, you know. And a lot of people that are very healthy, which is unfortunate, is they don't realize how, what a gift they have, you know. And life is for living, experiencing, you know. We are not going to be here forever. And I've said this at a number of talks I've given and, and you kind of see faces and they go, oh, 
people look at me and some of them might have empathy, some of them might have sympathy, some of them might, you know, various mindsets. But I make the point that while I'm a chronic and I'm a patient with a chronic condition today, you are the patient of the future with a chronic condition or multiple chronic conditions as you age, you know. Um, they are now looking to, to call aging a disease, you know. But there's no doubt about it. It's, it's part of the human condition that as we age, we develop conditions. So don't bother feeling sorry for me or looking at me as whatever. You're the future patient of tomorrow. So while you can, why don't you start making a difference to patients today? You know, you tomorrow, you know. And maybe then just turning to, you know, so somebody that had the, you know, corporate career and so forth and the idea of coming back into education, I guess, you know, we've lots of PhD students here, typically maybe less of those that have literally, you know, come back maybe in their 40s yeah, or less, so to come back. Less mad people, yeah. <coughs> what advice though would you give to people that are out there in corporate careers thinking, oh, do I want, do, would I like to return to this? Um, how do you, like, I suppose, how advice you're giving them in terms of, you know, maybe trying to process that decision, that might be thinking about a PhD or coming back to do a master's. Um, can you, I suppose, maybe help somebody that's out there having these thoughts but are unsure what yeah, to do? Yeah, I mean, there's all different mixes. Uh, some people come back and do a part-time, you know. Um, I decided to do full-time because I had done the master's part-time and I found that my head was never in one zone. It was constantly being distracted and was frustrating me. Um and I kind of understood that frustration to be that I really wanted to work on this problem, you know, of memory recall in the medical appointment rather than doing. And I found I was getting more rewards for it in terms of it feeling more right and it resonating with me. You know, I've done the corporate thing for a number of years and, you know, in the end of the day, what is it but balance sheets, profit and loss, making money, making money for shareholders, you know. I understand why a lot of wealthy, successful businessmen become philanthropic in their later years because they get bored with the humdrum of business, you know, and satisfying shareholders and want to do something more, you know. Um, so what I would say to them is decide what works for you. Obviously, there's a family component, you know, whether you're going to go back full time, whether you're going to go back part time. It is very, very different to doing a master's in the IMI when you're a class situation, doing a PhD. Um, it is more lonely um, in a lot of ways. And I suppose that would be the one thing that I would say, you know, we must try and do better is make that journey less lonely for for PhD students. Um, nevertheless, I suppose... You could argue that by its very nature, due to the depth of research and, and there's a huge amount of time goes into it. And how could it be anything but individual? You know what I mean? Um, but um, it's very different to a master's. It's it's a lot more in depth. There's a lot more rigor. But therein lies the experience and the journey. You know, um, This time next year, I hope to be finished. Um, but... Funny when I say I hope to be finished as a, you know, and be Dr. Michael yeah. Toomey. It sounds weird to say that. <laughs> but um, it's not finished for me. The journey's only beginning. Um, I'm now trying to process the information that I have onto a digital platform because in the future, 
you asked me where I see the future. The future for me as a patient would be to have my information in real time going to, we'll say, a repository in the cloud where real-time analytics is performed and that can, I suppose, provide me with information about myself but also contribute to information on the condition on a large group patient databases and that we will get insights from that data that will help us with the condition and the treatments we get. You know, I'm talking about merging, you know, demographic data, um, uh, genomic, proteomic, all different data streams, wearables, um, IoT devices, all of this data, and using, I suppose, the only way you could use that data properly is with artificial intelligence to start looking at it in real time. Um, and but that it would be the minimum of disruption for the patient, you know. If I could, I'd put an implantable into myself today, looking for certain biomarkers as predictors of the condition changing, rather than waiting for the condition to clinically manifest itself, you know. So um, that's what I would be looking at. Sounds a bit, you know, Elon Musk almost, but that's what I would I would see it as. Um, you know, so that I will be able to start tracking my disease and engaging with it more and interrogating it more and understanding it. No, um, thanks, Michael. I think it's it's really fascinating to hear your journey, first of all. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to hear, you know, talking of the PhD as the journey and also that it's the stage. So, yes, mm-hmm. hopefully next year mm-hmm. you will be Dr. Michael Toomey, um, yeah. but equally is that, you know, the ambition that, that that's, it's yeah. not, that's not the end of, no. of the research no, no. journey. No. Um, and equally, I think you know it's it also. I think listening to you talk about research, I think for me, you know, mm. it, you know, it shows the the potential benefits and the impact that mm. actually research can mm. actually have, um, and also how actually technology can be used mm. if we ask the appropriate questions mm. and set up the appropriate design. So, um, thanks for coming in today, Michael. No problem. That's all we have time for on this episode of Insights, the Cubs UCC podcast. And my thanks to Michael Toomey for joining me on the show to tell me about his remarkable life journey. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And join me next time for new ideas, research, and perspectives on Ireland and the world from us here at Cubs UCC. I'm Anthony MacDonald, and thanks for listening.